Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump into our study here this morning. Romans will pick up today in chapter 10, but certainly a chapter like Romans 9 warrants a little bit of review to make sure we're capturing the big picture of what Paul is covering here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So we'll bring this section to a close next Sunday. We'll, we'll look at Romans 11 then. But we really have this, this little spot in the middle of the book um, that, that kind of takes us down an interesting path to deal with some sensitive topics. And before we get into some of those, I, I, I thought it fitting here this morning, Pastor Jimmy mentioned, some of you may be either excited or bitter, depending on whether or not your team lost yesterday. Uh, one of the religions of the South is back in college football. Um, and some of you are like, I don't even care. But for those of you that do, I, I felt like as we resume our study of Romans on this Sunday morning, that being that it also brings with it the return of college football, I would honor such an occasion. Um, with a uh, illustration from a classic football movie entitled Rudy. Anybody? Oh, wow. First service was way more excited about Rudy than you guys are. So, well, we'll see then. So there's just a couple of hands there. Rudy's one of my favorite movies, and uh, football movies at least. And uh, it's about a young man who's desperate to attend the University of Notre Dame and to also play for its football team. And for Rudy, who's a, is a small guy and... Uh, comes from a background that's, that's not like many who are going to such a prestigious university. The odds are truly against him. And there's this scene in the movie where Rudy knows that his only chance is to appeal to a higher power. So in this particular scene, Rudy is sitting in the church and he's talking with the priest. It's a Catholic university. And the priest's name is uh, Father Kavanaugh. And here in this scene, Rudy exclaims, maybe I haven't prayed enough. Kavanaugh then replies, I don't think that that's the problem. Praying is something we do in our time, and the answers come in God's time. So Rudy then asks, if I've done everything I possibly can, can you help me? To which Kavanaugh replies, son, in 35 years of religious study, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. One, there is a God, and two, I am not him. In many respects, this is the message of Romans chapter 9. In the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul deals with the glory of salvation, this incredible truth that we, who are sinners, deserving of death, deserving of judgment, can be justified by faith and faith alone. And then in chapters 12 through 16, the end of the book, Paul will deal with the practical nature of salvation, the things that, that we should do as Christians, the way in which our life should look. But right here in chapters 9 through 11, Paul deals with the problem of salvation, especially as it pertains to the nation Israel, God's chosen people. Paul in chapter 9 hasn't simply waded into seemingly troubled waters. He has dived right in. If you recall, at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul declares a great burden for the salvation of his people Israel. So much so that Paul himself suggests that he would take their place in hell if it meant their salvation. 
we read in Romans 9, 1 through 3, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now, Paul from there, however, anticipates that such a statement will only draw scrutiny then from those who become confused as to how God's chosen people, to whom God has made numerous covenant promises, could somehow now be lost. Did God fail them? Did his word fail them? Paul says, certainly not. And then he proceeds to spend the rest of the chapter explaining why which inevitably confronts us with the truth of God's sovereignty, with the often troubling doctrine of election. Paul brings before us in chapter 9 the fact that there is a God and we are not Him. Chapter 9, as difficult as it may be for some, makes clear that God, being God, the, the potter, as it were, according to Paul's analogy, has the ability and the right to choose whomever he wants. To show mercy to some and not to others. Unless that seems unfair, Paul makes clear what he has from the very beginning of the book. That we are all deserving of judgment. So then fairness ought not to truly even be an issue. It's as if Paul says, God being God, what does it matter to us if he makes from that same lump of clay a vessel for honor and a vessel for dishonor? Do we have any right to complain? But lest you find yourself too uncomfortable with the idea of God's sovereignty, fear not, Paul concludes chapter 9 with the following beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You see, it's here that Paul begins to bring into view not just God's sovereignty, but man's responsibility. Just when you get to a place where you think perhaps Paul is suggesting that somehow in light of God's sovereign choosing, it means that we should just throw our hands up. Forget about it. There's nothing that we can do or nothing we must do. We see that there is, in fact, an act of faith, something that must be exercised, saving faith in Jesus Christ, as we'll see. And not just that, but it's open to all who believe. So then as we transition to chapter 10, Paul will return now to this original thought, this burden for Israel, his burden for the lost. If you would agree with me in prayer once more, Father, we pause and give you thanks, Lord, for this day and for your word. Your word which you exalt above your own name, Lord, you've given it to us, and I pray that we would treasure it here this morning to consider what a gift it is, Lord, to look at your word and to have your Holy Spirit that gives us understanding 
and helps us, Lord, to apply these truths to our lives. Father, we do pray that all that goes on in this place here today would be pleasing to you. That you would speak to us, Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, to leave this place transformed. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, here in chapter 10, verse 1, we read, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. You see, first off, an awareness of God's sovereign election is no reason to deter Paul from desiring and seeking in prayer the salvation of Israel. And it ought not to deter us from seeking the same for those that are lost, that we ourselves are burdened for. And regarding burdens, we should be burdened for the lost. That is what our heart's desire should be also. Can I ask you this morning, Christian, do you have a burden for the lost? Charles Spurgeon once unapologetically declared, Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself, be sure of that. Such a statement may seem at first a bit harsh, but is it truly out of line? If you suggest that that you know Jesus, that you've believed on him because of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it is that he's done for you, how could we not then have a burden for those who don't know or have responded to that same truth? This is why we are here. This is why we're here. Jesus did not come to live the life that we could not live, Die the death that was not his to die. Defeat Satan in the grip of sin. And make a way for our right relationship with God the Father. Just so we could live our best life now. And transition peacefully into the afterlife. He birthed his church with a purpose. Part of that was yes saving us. Making a way for forgiveness and eternal life. But we remain so that others may know. So that the world may know him. This is the great commission. We talk about it often. We often reference the fact that it's indicated in our own sanctuary. This is the great commission. That that mission that was given before Jesus and his ascension to heaven. Challenging us first with his apostles. And I believe throughout then the generations that we go into the ends of the earth. Making known the gospel. But it's important for us to understand that that the Great Commission and the process that follows, the process of discipleship, this is a reciprocal process. The mission is not the end game. Worship is. Right relationship is. It begins, as we have it phrased here, with exalt. What does exalt mean? Well, it means that we're in a place where we rightly understand who God is. And because of that understanding, are in a place of right relationship with Him where we worship Him. And from there then comes the equipping, which happens by the teaching of the Word through the Holy Spirit and the work that He does in our lives. Which then, once we are equipped and we understand the Word, we engage, we go forth, we share the truth. Why? Just because we're told to share it? No, with the goal of bringing others back to that same beginning of right relationship and worship before a holy and righteous God. That is the goal. This is what Paul desires of his countrymen. This is what we should all desire of those who are lost. To see people saved. Do you want this? If this is not on your heart and on your mind, There needs to be a heart check. You must, as a professing believer 
evaluate your own heart and to say, Lord, am I burdened for the lost? Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You see, Paul here, as he thinks about Israel, says they were very zealous. They are very zealous, even still. And and the thing about Israel and, and many people who are religious is that it's not necessarily the case that they are just in outright pagan practices and hedonism. Much of what they may be giving their lives to can in and of itself seem good. But zeal means nothing absent faith in Jesus Christ. Paul writes of himself in Philippians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Here Paul's giving an account of his own experience, his own credibility, saying, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. See, Paul says, I too was very zealous. I did all these things. And, and, and if some of that doesn't make much sense to you as it pertains to Paul's context, think of it this way. I was basically born in church. Born on Friday, I was there on Sunday and every day since. Sundays and Wednesdays and the ladies study and the fellowship events. And man, if there's a work day, I'm there. If there's a lawn to be mowed, I'm doing it. If there's a service to attend, I'm there. I do it all. Well, congratulations. Do you know Jesus? Have you given your life to Christ? Or have you convinced yourself that by doing all of these things, you are good enough? Good enough to get into heaven. You've earned your way in. Well, no, I know that's not the really the way that it's supposed to be. But is that what you've convinced yourself? If I do one more devotional, if I serve one more person, if I give just a little bit more, maybe then. You see, we can convince ourselves of all sorts of different things that, that boil down to, to just zeal. Wanting to do the things that pertain to the church. But have you surrendered your life to Christ? Paul says, but that, he says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yes, yet I also, excuse me, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He says, of all the things that I did with great zeal, they are rubbish. They mean nothing compared to knowing Christ. And, and, and maybe it's not about us and our works of righteousness. Maybe it's in our desire to see the lost saved. We find ourselves inclined to be sort of uh, just accepting of a lot of different things in our culture today. So often we want to give people and others a pass because they seem sincere. They say something about God. And they seem like they're trying to be a decent person. And so we want to be quick sometimes to go, oh, well, uh, they said they believe in God and they're trying to live a good life. And so we, we must be good. I don't, I don't really need to press that issue any further. The fact is, as sincere as they may be, they're sincerely wrong. If they're not pursuing Jesus, if they've not believed upon Jesus. As Paul says in verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. You see, so often we can easily find ourselves in a place of seeking to establish our own righteousness by doing the list of things that we've determined make us good. We're called to submit to the righteousness of God. And praise God, verse 4, Christ is the end 
of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It means that Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. That all the things that, that, that are captured in God's standard that we could not accomplish or do on our own is experienced through Jesus. He does it. He has fulfilled it. And, and furthermore, as it pertains to evangelism, it is not our job to go around adjudicating people's salvation. God will do that work as the true judge. But God has given us through his word good insight that we then must employ as we engage in evangelism, and that is that Jesus is the only way. So yes, if somebody says, no, I believe in God and I'm a pretty good person, we don't just go, oh, okay, well, praise God. And we say, do you believe in Jesus? Acts chapter 4, verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. No other activity, no other action, no other person. It's Jesus. But you see, for the Jews and for so many others, Jesus is dismissed. And some of their works-based righteousness is sought to replace him. But it cannot be done. And as Paul has considered, this exists even in the church today, as I've, as I've talked about. Those who, through their good works and their sincere efforts and their attempts at living a good life, think that they will get to heaven, but they've not believed on Jesus. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. It's as if Paul says here, look, if, you, if you're going to live according to the righteousness of the law, then you better do it. You better live by it. And you'll quickly learn, I can't. I can't do it. He goes on, verse 6, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. You see, what, what, what Paul is getting at here, and, and sometimes you can read these verses and it can seem a little confusing. What he's done here is he's taken scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is where it was put before the, the, the Jewish people at that time to, to choose, choose how you're going to live. Choose whom you're going to live for. And what Paul is doing by, by taking scripture from Deuteronomy 30 and adding to it a little bit here in this way, or giving clarification, I should say, to it, he's helping them to see that, look, when this was first put before you, Christ is the fulfillment of this. He, what he's saying is, I'm going to go back to the law and show you that Christ fulfills it. You, you can't go into heaven and bring Christ down. You can't go into the depths and, and bring him up. You can't have some supernatural experience and figure God out or become God yourself. You can't pour yourself so much into study that you're going to figure out all the truths of this world, deep and hidden truths, and suddenly figure it all out. No, you need to just rest in Christ, in Jesus. Yet we're so prone to want to go back to the works because it's something that seems like it's within our power or it's too easy just to try. There must be something more. You know, it's interesting in Exodus 32, and, and this is around the time of, of, of the giving of the law, but in particular there in Exodus 32, Moses, he's on Mount Sinai. He's conversing with God. He comes down. This is where the Israelites are in idol worship. Aaron has failed to, to keep them restrained. And Moses comes down and he puts before them a choice as to whether or not they'll be on the side of, of God or not. And in Exodus 32, 28, we read, So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. 
I mention that because as we go back to the time of the giving of the law and, and from that time forward until Jesus, we, we know and it's, and it's stated as, as much in Scripture that the, the law brings death. The law brings an awareness of sin. Why is it that we so often give ourselves to the things of the law? Whereas if you want to contrast that in the early church in Acts chapter 2 verse 41, we read there as the gospel now is being preached, the good news, the fact that Jesus has come, the fulfillment of the law. As the gospel was preached, people responded and it says in Acts 2.41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. It's a bit different, isn't it? You see, the gospel brings life. All the different ways that people seek to find God or to even be God. Yet verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We just rest in the simplicity of that for a moment. I mean, once again, think about what Paul has, has been saying here. All the ways in which people have sought to establish their own righteousness. To get themselves to a place where they go, okay, I'm good enough. All the work that goes into trying to prove that, that you're okay Yet Paul says, look, it's right here. It's near to your heart. All you need to do is confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you're saved. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that simple? Look how easy that is. And there's no other qualifier there. There's nothing else. There's no and this, and this, or but this, or if this. Now, some people look at this and they go, well, what about the rest of Scripture? What about all the other do's and don'ts and how your life should look like this and your life shouldn't be like this? And what I would say is, yes, living the Christian life is not always easy. Yes, there are things that we should seek to uh, model our lives after. But make no mistake, those things being the fruit of salvation, they're born out of this. It's not do all these things and then you're good enough to come to Christ. Get your life all cleaned up and then you can believe on Jesus. No, it's believe on him and you'll be saved. And then the Holy Spirit that was with you, drawing you unto repentance, that it now indwells you and seals you unto salvation and comes upon you, will do this work in your life. So that suddenly the things that you looked at in Scripture and thought, I'll never be able to measure up to this. God's now saying, I'm doing it. I'm doing this work in you. I'm changing you. I'm changing your mind. I'm changing your heart. I'm changing the way that you live your life. He does that work. You don't have to. And note once again, on whom do we call and believe? It's Jesus. It's him. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And friends, we need to be willing to stand firm on this truth. If you are to have a heart for the lost and to be obedient and reaching the lost in his name, you must be committed to sound doctrine and willing to say that there is salvation found in no one and nothing else but Jesus. It's him alone. And great news, he's an equal opportunity savior. He's available to all who call upon him. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever 
calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Praise God. And somebody say, but I thought it was just for the elect. It is. But this says whoever. Yes, it does. Well, how can it? It's both. It's both. It's there. It's both of these things. And here's the thing. And this is, of course, just something, I suppose, kind of fun to, uh, to try and think about what this would be like. I'm not suggesting that this is rooted in Scripture, but it's been said that when you arrive in heaven, there on those pearly gates, as you're looking up and entering in, that it will read, whosoever will may come. And as you walk through the gate, if you just happen to look back and look at the other side of the gate, you'll read, chosen before the foundation of the world. See, both of these things are true. So then, if in fact man does have responsibility to respond to the gospel message, then there is a very important question for us to consider. And Paul deals with this next. Verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? While we can and should agree that salvation is a work of the Lord, God's sovereignty does not absolve us of the responsibility both of responding, but also as believers of going and of sharing the truth of the gospel. If people being saved means that they need to hear, if calling upon Jesus means they need to know who Jesus is, well, how will they know if we don't tell them? If we aren't obedient to what God calls us to do and share in the truth. Oswald J. Smith writes, We talk of the second coming, yet half the world has never heard of the first. Isn't that interesting? How often might you say throughout your day, Lord Jesus, I need you right now. These people are about to drive me crazy. Nobody? It's just me? Okay, I got one hand. Thank you for your honesty back there. Oh, there's another one. Okay. Or have you ever found yourself saying, Lord Jesus, come back. This world is just, it's, it's out of control. It's crazy town. You got to come back and get us. Anybody ever felt that way? Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Okay. In those moments when you're feeling that way, when you're thinking that way, when you're seeing things that, that have caused you to be grieved, you're thinking, Lord Jesus, come back. In those moments, are you thinking, as much as I'm about to lose my mind right now, Lord, these people need you. Instead of looking at it from the standpoint of these people are driving me crazy right now or all of this stuff is, is just nuts. Instead, start to think about, Lord, maybe people need the truth of the gospel. I say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. But the fact is you haven't yet. Jesus, you didn't come. And you may any moment. Certainly, Scripture would validate as much. But I don't know when. And so if you've tarried in your return, if you haven't come yet, that maybe, just maybe, that means that there's still some work to be done. Such a scenario here reminds me of the Dead Sea, that great body of water, so beautiful in appearance, yet it's dead. No life teeming within it. Why? Well, practically speaking, because the salt content is just too high. Nothing can survive in it. Yet it's confusing because the water that's flowing into the Dead Sea is good. It's, it's fresh. It's, it's consistent. And so what, what happens? Well, the water doesn't flow out. The water that flows in, that good fresh water, doesn't have the opportunity to leave the Dead Sea. It stops right there. Christian living water has poured into your life. It's revived you. It's given you new life. 
But that water, as it were, must also pour out as you share the truth of the gospel with others, as you tell other people about what he has done in your life. If we don't, then it begins that life teeming within us becomes subdued, even dead. So then, are you saying that other people's salvation is dependent on me, is dependent on you, is dependent on us? I would say yes and no. I do believe that God in his infinite wisdom and power will make himself known. That as we think about maybe that person that we never had the chance to, to talk to, to witness to, that a God who is faithful and loves them far more than we ever could finds ways to declare himself. I also struggle, and this one can certainly be debated, and many do, not to give myself a pass or to take myself off the hook. It's quite the opposite of that, if you'll just bear with me for a moment. But I struggle to think of myself as personally so important in the salvation of another that God just can't somehow overcome me and my disobedience and unwillingness to share truth. So I do believe that for those that are lost, that deliverance has come and that God will make himself known. But as for us, who he invites to participate in this process, to be obedient and telling others of the truth of the gospel, I find the words of Mordecai to Esther rather fitting there in this unique Old Testament book. It's recorded in Esther chapter 4 and verses 13 and 14. Mordecai is grieving. He's in sackcloth and ashes over the plot that he's learned about to kill his people. And Esther, seeking to comfort him, sends resources to him, even asks him to, to <clears throat> cover himself. And, and Mordecai responds to Esther, tells her people that have come to him how they should respond, saying in verse 13, And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Christian, I do believe that deliverance will come for God's people. They have, it has throughout history. The question before you and I is really, will you join him in the work? Will you become a part of the family business? Will you be willing to say, God, you can send me? Will you be willing to recognize that in any given moment, on any given day, it may not seem the most significant of circumstances, but yet God is saying, I have you here right now for such a time as this. That a sensitivity to the leading of his spirit, a familiarity with his voice prompts you to go, here's an opportunity to share truth with this person. Here's an open door to tell others about what Jesus has done in my life. Or will you quench the spirit and go another way? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Listen, guys, I don't have beautiful feet. Okay, A lot of people don't like feet. Right? We think about feet and we're like, I don't know how pretty those feet are. Especially feet at this time. This particular verse is referencing those that brought good news of the return from Babylon. They'd been no doubt running. Dirt, dust, mud. But those feet were beautiful because they brought good news. Good news that the people were looking forward to hearing. Do you know that that's who we are when we bring the good news, the gospel of peace? Christian, we have good news to share. It need not be confrontational. It doesn't have to be on a soapbox on the street corner. In most cases, it doesn't need to be the way in which you and your mind likely build it up to be. 
And it certainly should not be standing there with a sign telling someone that they're going to hell. The fact is, we have the opportunity to deliver a beautiful message of grace and mercy shared by someone who cares with someone they love. And some will receive it and some will reject it. That's the fact of the matter. But what a privilege it is to share it. Paul writes, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. You see, Paul then begins to say, did, have they not heard of the, of the Jewish people? Did they not know? And responding again to his own question, saying, certainly they did. And as we get into chapter 11 next week, we'll see what God's plan is for Israel yet still. And here in this moment, what he says of the Gentile nations coming in, which includes us, is that it was intended as the gospel was turned towards the Gentiles. It was intended in many respects to provoke Israel to jealousy. And it has in many respects. And the same principle even proves true still today, that it provokes others to jealousy, not just Jews, but anyone who is outside of the church, anyone who is outside of Christ, that oftentimes when properly on display, they look at our lives, the rest we experience, the peace we enjoy, the forgiveness that we know, these are all things that people are looking for. All individuals made in the image of God ultimately desire these things. Seek it out in a multitude of different ways, but desire these things. And when they see it in your life, Christian, when they see peace which surpasses all understanding, when they see you navigating the trials of life with grace, with kindness, it provokes them to say, I want that. I want to know that. And then we have the privilege of going, let me tell you. But Isaiah is very bold, verse 20, and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the heart of our Father. I invite the worship team to come forward and lead us in song as we take communion. And I would say to you that truly with outstretched hands, we know that Jesus hung on that cross, a willing sacrifice for the lost, Jew and Gentile alike. And salvation is available to all who believe on the name of Jesus. And Christian, we must have a burden for the lost. We must be committed to a right view of salvation. That is, that, that, that it's found in Jesus Christ alone. And we must be willing to go, to speak to tell others of what it is that he has done. I would say this, that if we aren't overwhelmed and motivated by the good news, then I don't think we really understand the bad news. But be comforted. Just as he was with you at salvation, so he is with you and in you still. And he'll do that work. If we are simply obedient, if we, if we are just simply willing to say, Lord, I want to do this. I want to have a burden for the lost and I want to be faithful in telling others what you've done in my life. Would you go before me? Would you do that work? Give me boldness. Give me confidence. He will. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.